Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. What a great Sunday to be gathered together. Um, just love it. Lo- love uh, uh, Having traveled to some places where you can't worship publicly, uh, gathered in little hotel rooms and stuff, to be able to gather together, to sing, to pray, to hear the Word of God together, to have a donut after church and be with other Christians is, is a powerful thing. Something not to be taken for granted. I love that. I love to think about that and give thanks to God for that. I love to think about the fact, and, and I'm going to come to that in about 25 minutes. I like, there's a few awake. That's good. I like, I like the idea that America needs exactly what the church has to offer. And when I came down to these texts and I wrote the sermon series for this uh, summer, of course, you always look at the weekend of July 4th in a kind of, kind of as a set-apart piece, but the sending out of the 72 was a particularly marvelous illustration of what we're called to do and be as Christians in, in, the, big wide, in the big wide world. Sue did such a nice job with those readings. And I'd like to come back to just the first three verses of Luke chapter 10. Remember, we spoke a little bit last week of of Jesus' crowds being huge. And now slowly and steadily, they're going to get smaller and smaller. His, His sermons, his messages become more and more challenging. They cut to the heart deeper and deeper. It's not going to become easier to follow Jesus. It's going to become more difficult. Jesus said, Uh, John chapter 10 verses 1 through 3. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Go get them. It's going to be great. You're the lamb, they're the wolf, have at it. Another one of those difficult things to, to hear. But make no mistake, Jesus says, go, I am sending you, 72 people. What do you think the percentage of people in the towns were Christian already by the time the, the, the couples made it to the town? My sense would be in most of those towns, zero. That they went in first with the good news of Jesus Christ. They were the first ones to say the Messiah is here. They were the first ones culturally to pray, to read the scriptures, to, 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 to point to the fulfillment of the Messiah and to proclaim the good news, the Lord, the, the kingdom of God is, is near. Jesus puts his people, his leaders, his, his, his sent ones, his apostles into an offensive posture as opposed to a defensive posture. Now there's something to be said for that. The church is not called to be at a defensive posture and kind of sit and and let the evil one lob uh, fire scuds or shoot artillery rounds into the church. The church and the people of God are called to an offensive position, to an offensive posture in the culture, in in the place where we live, and in our own hearts and lives. To get up and get after it. Sometimes I think we measure the wrong things. We measure the people who come and gather, and that's significant, believe me. And yet with that, do we measure where we're going? And do we measure the offensive nature of the calling of God 
as Jesus did when he sent out the 72. And they were to be givers, not takers. That, that whole piece, you don't take bread, don't take money, don't take this, don't take that, get up and get after it. They were called to come in with nothing but the good news of Jesus. The kingdom of God is near. And they brought a relevant message versus the topic of the day. I'm sure that even in that context, you could have spoken of politics in a way that people would go, yep, those Romans are driving us nuts. I didn't vote for the emperor, neither did you. Yeah, but if you mess around with the emperor, he kills you. He does not have a four-year term, and he has an army that could waste you. But I'm sure that there was talk of taxes. I'm sure there was talk of economics. Because the way that Israel was, the, the money and the way it flowed, and this conquering army coming from the north and the east, and this coming from the south and the west. But the people who Jesus sent came with the relevant message. The kingdom of God is near. The Messiah is on the way. He's, he's embodied. He's not just on his way philosophically or in some sort of dreamland. He's on his way. He's got his sandals on and his robe around him. Jesus, the Messiah, is on the way. And then that marvelous peace that the church, the 72, and all who are Christians, we represent someone bigger. Jesus said, whoever listens to you listens to me. Whoever rejects you rejects me, but whoever rejects me rejects him who sent me. Isn't it interesting? You can say farewell to the messenger and disagree with that, and then you disagree with the one who sent him, but if you disagree with the one who sent him, then you disagree and have a problem with his father in heaven. You see, we represent something bigger than just ourselves. We represent something bigger than just kind of a, a, a political action committee. Where we represent the God of the universe who sent His Son to be the Messiah of the world. Repent and believe the good news. And so Jesus sent Him out. I don't know if they did like football. One, two, three, Jesus, let's go. One, two, three, gospel, let's go. But they went. Little towns, little dusty places in little homes, in little contexts of life, into families and into... and did a little pre-evangelism work. This is what it's going to be like. Going in the name of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Representing someone and something bigger than just the moment or the guy or the... representing the Lord of the universe. So if we draw that into our context a little bit, we think a little bit about where we are sent. Well, we're sent to our own nation, right? We, that's part of it. There should be a Christian voice in our nation. And Christians have something to say and something to speak into the way the nation is run, the culture and context of the nation, and all of those pieces of life that affect us and affect everybody else. We are sent into our own context, into our own nation. And if we look at that a little bit, we could look and say, it's been kind of an interesting two weeks as you look at a Christian context of America. And if you take the Roe versus Wade decision and wind that through, 
It's interesting to think about that. Well, we're called to the state of California, right? We live here. And that puts us as people in an offensive position in a very difficult spot. I don't know about you, but anyone who runs a business and anyone who runs a nonprofit organization, anyone who runs a preschool has been so tied up with state regulations and all of those things that it it becomes very difficult to stay in an offensively minded position because there's so much rigmarole that goes on in the state of California. We are sent and located here. And we can't avoid that or evade that. God has set us here to serve and to go out as sheep among wolves with the good news of Jesus Christ. And that's okay. And we're sent to Orange County. Ain't it great? (laughs) I don't know about you. I think we live in the best place in the history of the world. I love it here. Don't you love it here? This is a great place to live. I mean, if you could live here, California, you could live anywhere. You could sell your house and join the other two million Californians live anywhere else in the world, except where? Maybe Hong Kong and New York City? But you choose to live here. This is a great place to live. Yesterday, I was with two buddies. We climbed on our mountain bikes 3,200 feet. We went 22 miles, 11 up and 11 back, 11 down. It was awesome. As we looked to the southwest, we could see the Pacific Ocean. It was phenomenal. We could almost watch the clouds burn off it. As we turned to the northeast, we could see all of the Inland Empire before all the smog socked it in. It was fantastic. We live in a great, great place. There is so much opportunity here. So much, so many, many good things. Friday night, I went out with my family to the opening of a new restaurant here in Old Town. We sat in the back of the restaurant, and the sun went down, and the TV was on, and the fans were blowing. You can't do that in Florida, Texas, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, right? This is a great place to live, and we are sent and privileged to live and have our church, our our family of faith, be right here in Orange County. And we're sent to the city of Orange. And our place has been in the city of Orange for, well, since 1882. When you say St. John's and you're out and about, people go, oh yeah, that's the church in Old Town down by the thing. And you go, yeah, just by the plaza there. And they go, the circle, and you go, no, the plaza. (laughs) Right? We are set here. And that brings a unique nature to our ministry because it's not all Germanic immigrants moving to Orange as it was in the 1880s up until the post-war years. It's a whole different demographic moving in, calling us to think about to whom we are sent and what we're all about. And that's a picture of my house on the left. We're called into family and sent into family. At the end of the day, I love you guys and I love serving as a pastor in this congregation. God has given me specific responsibility to lead my family to Christ. And our families are fertile, fertile seedbeds 
of sharing love and faith in Jesus Christ and exercising the grace we proclaim. And sometimes it's easy to lose sight of that, especially when the kids get older and you can't just pick them up and throw them in the back of the car. We are sent into our family systems to be messengers of Jesus. Apostello sent with a message of grace and reconciliation in the name of Jesus. And don't ask me why, but it's easier to have a conversation with someone I meet in the back of a restaurant than perhaps it is with those in my family who are very close to me. Offensive position rather than defensive. A couple of stats that are kind of interesting about where we're going. This came out two weeks ago from a Gallup poll that said America's belief in God had gone from 1967 to 98% to 81% just a couple of weeks ago. Now, is that a good statistic or a bad statistic? I don't know about you, but I think we live in a target-rich environment. And I can tell you this, that as people who sit in a church week after week after week, you are more equipped in your religion and your faith in God than the people there, the 19% that aren't. Because everybody believes in something. And we organize our lives around that thing. If it's sports, people organize their lives around sports. If it's recreation, if it's work, people organize and worship something. There's no one that is a complete and total atheist because there's one guiding principle in everybody's life. It's just that 19% of America doesn't acknowledge what it is. This book is fascinating. It's called The Nuns where they came from, who they are, and where they are going. The rise of the nuns speaks to American surveys that were taken where people said, what do you believe and how connected are you to an organized religious body? And each year for the last 20-some years, the nuns, people who mark as, I'm not affiliated with any church or religious body, has gone up and up and up. Again, is that a sign of negativity or a target-rich environment? Because no matter what, we can't negotiate with this. I am sending you out. Jesus also said these words from Matthew chapter 5, verses 14, 15, and 16. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. I believe that with all my heart. That our nation needs what Christians have to offer in a way that's even different than when Jesus sent out the 72. And here's three pieces that the country needs. One is grace versus cancellation one of the things I, I really enjoy reading are some of the authors who 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 wrote these essays and they got smoked and and all of a sudden I'm, I'm reading things now that I would have never even looked at five years ago and the authors are rich and deep but because they put something in an article somewhere they were canceled and put on the outskirts of the culture so to speak 
after the race riots and all the stuff that went on a couple years ago, I pulled in all my social media and all my stuff because I wasn't going to say something stupid or put something stupid out there and have people be offended by what I put out there. Nobody wants to be canceled. But the cancel culture operates in opposition to a culture of grace. We live by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Christians bring grace. Because the one who went from Capernaum to Bethsaida to Chorazin to all those little towns and did his thing and sent out the 72, by the end of Luke, he's going to end up in Jerusalem. And by the end of his ministry, he's going to end up on the cross. And by his death on the cross, he won grace and favor with God for you and me. Those who reject the one who's sent, it rejects Jesus. The one who rejects Jesus rejects the Father. But the one who hears the word of God, the one who takes that promise into their heart, the one who has faith in Jesus Christ is saved. And sins are forgiven. And lives are restored. And pieces of life that were broken and fragile are put back together in a way that is powerful and resilient. And we are the ones that bring that in this culture. We are the only voice of grace in a culture that says, cancel them, beat them up, they'll just go away. Uh Uh-uh, not Christians. We've never gone away. And I've said this over and over again. We are a part of the most sustained, successful movement in the history of humanity. The nation needs the grace that the church proclaims. And the idea also of mercy over judgment. It's only in the church that someone can can, can find restoration where someone has earned all of the ire and all of the anger and all of the hot wrath that that a community can muster. And it's Christians that say, you know what? Because the Lord's been good to me, I'm going to be good to you. And in our homes and families, when we can put it on someone with a sarcastic comment or a dirty political statement or or something that we know is just going to catch them the wrong way. It's Christians that say, I'm not going to judge you on that. I'm going to be merciful to you. And I'm going to see how that mercy plays in your soul. You see, mercy has a marvelous way of softening up a hard heart. Matter of fact, mercy may be the only thing because it has a divine origin that can soften a hard heart. And you can pick any biblical person you want to pick out, Peter and Paul and David and Moses, all of them. When God exercises mercy on us, he softens our spirits and turns us toward one another which is what our nation, our region, our families, what we need. And I think also we come with a transcendent perspective. I don't know about you. I'm not living just for the here and now. I look at that little grandson of mine running around, and this week he ran straight into a wall as if he ran into the thing, and all I heard was that Klinkenberg cranium go, thud! There was more damage to the wall than there was to his head. I hope they're not streaming this right now, but. (laughs) You see, we look at life in a transcendent way instead of a just today way. 
And while that might, may not be uniquely Christian, what drives that vision for us is uniquely Christian. They talk about the enemies of the United States playing long ball, that they think in terms of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, and we only think in terms of four years, and we just got four years, and then we can do this and that, and two more years we can vote, we got midterm elections, and we'll get, we get all this stuff, we'll get it all squared away, and it'll all be good. I'm reminded that God works in the fullness of time, that it took 400 years for God to finally click the switch and move the Jake, Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's descendants out of Egypt. We have a transcendent perspective, and we need a transcendent perspective, that God is living and active and working in our midst, in our nation, in our state, in our county, in our city, in our homes and families. And like the 72 who went out, We see the results of what the good news does. Take that bulletin home with you and read those last two paragraphs in there. Jesus said, we saw Satan fall like lightning from the sky. They had power over thus and such, over demons and snakes and all of those things. You're like, eh, yeah. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And that transcendent perspective makes us not only resilient and tough, but it keeps us from being fragile and easily broken. And a transcendent perspective allows us to take the love of Jesus into the context of life. And rejoice. Rejoice not of all the power that we had and all the crazy stuff that went on. Jesus looks at them and he says what? Rejoice that your name is written in the book of life. The book of life is not a St. John's membership directory, although some people believe it is. You know, wait a minute and stand before St. Peter and say, St. John, St. John's, okay, you're in, you're good. Are you buried in the St. John's Cemetery? Because, oh my gosh, we got a room for you. Huh. Your names are written in the Lamb's book of life through the blood of Jesus Christ that is immutable, that is not to be taken away. There's not a cancellation of the relationship that God has for you. The, the culture can't unstick Jesus from the cross and say, sorry. No, no, we are connected to a hope that began in the Garden of Eden, even before that, was made real in the person of Jesus, was attached to us in our baptismal grace, and leads us to be hopeful into the future. The older I get, the more I believe that hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out His grace into our hearts. Marvelous time to be alive. So much opportunity. So many things at our fingertips that our ancestors never had that can leverage the sending out and allow us to reach those close to us and those far away with the love of Jesus. You pray with me. It's just a good Sunday to be in the fellowship of St. John's Day. It's a good Sunday to be in worship, Lord. Thank you for our country, for those who lead it, for those who administer her laws, 
for those things that fall the way we think they should fall and for those things that don't. Grant your church a, a, a renewed zeal, Lord. You're, you're doing something, and, and it's kind of fun at St. John's, and we're, we're a part of that. The good work that, that you do as we make an impact in our community and in our nation and in the world, what a marvelous blessing that is. Like the 72, not pointing to ourselves or whatever, but, but, but pointing back to you and saying that one, that, that one on the cross, that one who rose from the dead, that Jesus, that's the one we proclaim. You've called us to be the light of the world. And as the world seems to be dimming, grant that your light would play a marvelous contrast against the backdrop of that darkness as you have for millennia. We pray that you would bless us in our homes and families and that you would open up avenues and opportunities to have civil conversations, whether that starts with politics and ends with the faith or starts with the faith and ends up somewhere else. Just guide us with your spirit's power, working in your word. So as you promised, Lord, lives would be changed and hearts would be and people's names would be written in the Lamb's book of life. All this we pray in Jesus' name.